I'm really grateful for this uh, invitation. Um, it happens that I uh, gave a seminar in Durham when I was um, completing that book, The Graving of Creation, that's just going around. It was an enormously helpful conversation. And so at the same sort of stage in relation to my uh, monograph on glory, it's a delight to be uh, with you again and to be able to um, tease out some ideas. And uh, I really look forward to the conversation that will ensue. Uh, I've provided um, quite a full handout and, and then uh, I'm going to do what I promised myself I would never do and just read a paper. Um, so bear with me if there's a lot of reading. Um, and uh, uh, But I hope very much <coughs> that it'll stimulate lots of uh, uh, questions and lots of conversation and if if it's uh, if what you hear is too much to bear, you must just stop me and we'll talk. Um, so difficult thoughts about glory, or as uh, Tom McLeish offered me the other day, glorious thoughts about difficulty, whichever you like. Um, so in this paper, I propose a way of understanding divine glory in Scripture and in various contemporary contexts. And my starting point, as you see from number one on the handout, is a semiotic approach. That's to say, I propose that the apprehension of divine glory is typically the perception of a sign or array of signs pointing beyond itself to the unknowable depths of the reality of God. <coughs> that sign or array of signs, being a self-communication of the divine nature, always calls for a human response. For the Christian, such a semiotic understanding of divine glory as I'm advancing here comes easily because Christ functions as the quintessential example of such a sign of the divine reality. So in John 1.14 in the King James Version, we beheld his glory, which is described as being of the only, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, we saw, we saw the weightiness, the importance, the significance of Jesus. And we saw that importance as being that of an utterly reliable sign of the character of God. So that to see the Son is to see the Father, to know of God's character, that though it is beyond our knowing, it is full of grace and truth. As Stephen Garrett puts it, God's sublime glory is not formless but finds its beautiful expression in the Son in whom the Father delights. And the coming of this perfect sign asks of us a response, which in the Johannine pro prologue is to believe on his name. The incarnation manifests divine glory, the human Jesus a sign of the divine nature, but a sign that both reveals and conceals. As von Balthasar notes, the one God who is invisible by nature appears while not appearing and enters visibility while at the same time remaining a ground but rests in itself. Another very evident text of Jesus as the great sign of God is 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which asks us to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I myself come to the subject of glory out of a long engagement with theodicy, 
and a sense of the ultimately unsatisfactory character of theoretical accounts of the compatibility of an omniscient, omnibenevolent God with the huge extent and profundity of creaturely suffering. I found myself wanting rather to do what the biblical writers themselves do, which is to face up honestly to the fact of suffering and the mysterious character of the sovereign God. Discourse about glory naturally links the two, be that in the awesome self-disclosure of the Lord at Isaiah 6, the enigmatic response of Jesus to Lazarus' illness in John 11, the glorification of the Divine Son at Calvary, or the promise of eschatological liberation from creaturely groaning in Romans 8. Christians naturally reach for contemplation of the cross as a way of engaging with the suffering in the world. Such a contemplative lens opens up a view of glory in which what we can see of the struggles in the natural world can be seen in counterpoint with the depths, sense of the God's depth of engagement with all suffering. Gloria Mundi, and we're at two on the handout here, Gloria Mundi, what the not yet completely redeemed world discloses of its creator, must be appropriated and understood in the context of Gloria Crucis, of the gift of the incarnate Christ and his self-surrender on the cross. But I want to go on to suggest the importance of what I would call three-lens seeing, in which those two views in counterpoint are combined with an eschatological perspective into a kind of triptych. This last perspective concerns the relation between God and the creation as it will be in its final transformed state. So Gloria Mundi, what we learn of God through reading signs of God in the creation, must be appropriated and understood in the context of Gloria Crucis, of all we learn of God in the Passion of Christ. And this in turn opens up and is informed by what one might term Gloria in Excelsis, the eschatological song of the new creation, in which creaturely flourishing will be attained without creaturely struggle, and God will be all in all. A good way of understanding an interpretive approach adopted here is to think in terms of a hermeneutical lens, or rather in this case a set of three lenses, Gloria Mundi, Gloria Crucis, Gloria in Excelsis, in generating overlapping <coughs> images. In this first section, these images are in the form of readings of the sacred texts, and later on I shall apply the method to the contemplation of the natural world. Seeing through lenses is a very helpful metaphor for textual interpretation in that it brings some aspects of objects into focus while leaving other aspects blurred. I accept this limitation of my method and accept also that other choices of lenses, divine glory as honour, as reputation, as radiance, or the inclusion of creaturely praise as the giving of glory to God, would give a very different interpretative picture. The validity of my choice of lens here will, may be judged both by the consistency of its results with the scriptures and by the generativity of the readings produced and the insights gained by applying its use to other contexts. Reflection on certain key biblical texts, especially in Exodus and the Gospel of John, suggests the value of understanding divine glory principally in terms of sign. In Exodus, 
the kavod of the Lord, principal term for divine glory in the Hebrew Bible, is typically represented as a striking physical vision which yet does not exhaust the divine reality. It rather signifies the Lord's presence with his people while retaining a strong sense of the mystery and otherness of God. In John, as we have seen, the glory of Jesus is seen by the we of the prologue as an utterly reliable sign of the Father, full of grace and truth. Strikingly, as I shall go on to explore, Jesus' glorification, the consummation of his life as sign, comes at his hour, an hour both of degrading death and triumphant resurrection. The term glory as applied to God <coughs> is a very mysterious one. So we're at three on the handout now, um, just looking at uh, some comments by Maimonides in The Guide of the Perplexed. Maimonides lists three ways in which the divine glory might be understood. <coughs> Uh, cases in which the kavod is intended to signify the created light that God causes to descend in a place in order to confer honour upon it in a miraculous way. Maimonides here is citing Exodus 24.16 and 40.34. And also cases where kavod is intended to signify God's true essence and true reality, citing here Exodus 33. And the third case is that of human glorification of praise of God. In this account here, I distinguish sharply between creaturely glorification of God and divine glory itself. The godness of God needs no glorification. Praise is the proper response of the creature to the creator, but creaturely praise can add nothing to the divine glory. This is a vital distinction between creaturely glory, which may be almost entirely manufactured out of the praise of others, as with a supermodel or a rock singer or a sportsman overhyped on the basis of a single performance, and a divine glory in which there is no shadow of inflation or illusion. It may seem curious to distinguish so strongly between two uses of the same root word, between creaturely glorification and divine glory, but theology must so distinguish, because this is a part of the way we seek to understand the distinction between creature and creator. So I bracket out here Maimonides' third sense. We are left then with the first two senses, and the first seems to me to be essentially semiotic. God makes an apprehensible phenomenon in a particular place signify God's presence in that place without in any way exhausting the divine reality. The second sense is more ontological. Glory is God's true essence and reality. I return to that sense below in my discussion of Exodus 33. <coughs> Maimonides ends his discussion of divine glory with this. Understand then the equivocality with reference to glory and interpret the latter in every passage in accordance with the context. Wise advice indeed. What this semiotic approach to glory can do, as I hope to show, is to defocus the very strong popular associations of glory with luminous beauty and hence make it possible to explore the relation of divine glory to places of suffering, of darkness 
of mystery. So let's see how that approach works out with some key biblical texts. I hope it <coughs> will be evident that an understanding of glorious sign fits well with the classic Hebrew Bible theophanies in Exodus 16, 19, 24, 40, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1. We see a physical manifestation of the presence of Yahweh, of the sheer godness of God, which yet leaves a sense of profound mystery beyond the sign given. But the case of Exodus 33, 18 and following is rather different, and that I reproduce that passage at 4 on the handout. <coughs> In response to Moses' request, God speaks of his two, his goodness, wealth, beauty, splendour. God pronounces his name, linking this passage with the theophany at the burning bush. Ferreira, in his survey of the use of kavod in the Hebrew Bible, notes that if God responds positively to Moses' request, then God's kavod is seen in his goodness. And in the book of Exodus, God's goodness is his saving activity on behalf of his people. Walter Mobley notes that, quote, the precise nuance of kavod, which in general means God's majesty, <coughs> qualities that call forth worship, must be determined from the context. In verse 22, it is effectively synonymous with God himself, for the context is describing Yahweh himself passing by. Mobley continues, Moses sought not only that Yahweh's face should go with the people, but that he might see Yahweh's glory. The latter was partially granted, but partially as important. For Jason Fout, God's glory is presented in this passage in terms of honour, reputation and identity, though he admits that glory eludes easy categorisation. Where Fout chooses to stress honour and praiseworthiness, I see mystery and depth. God does show intimacy and patience with his servant, but the main thrust of this exchange with Moses is that what can be shown is only a hint of the depths of the divine reality. This is an interpretive crux for my understanding of the relation between divine glory and the divine nature. If Moses' request is altogether granted, then the divine glory is identified with, indeed reducible to, the divine goodness and splendour. God is tuv through and through. The divine kavod is a sign of that goodness. But if the request is not granted or not wholly granted, then here the kavod is not functioning as a sign as it does in the earlier Exodus theophanies. Moses has seen all those signs. The kavod of the Lord here rather connotes something it would be too terrible to see, the sheer godness of God in its essence. Interestingly, the passage subverts the usual assumption that in the Hebrew Bible, auditory communication takes precedence over the visual and supersedes it when both are present. For here Moses listens to God, but is not granted the ultimate visual experience that he craves. My own view is that we must presume that God's response in Exodus 33 is not altogether positive, but rather contains a necessary element of concealment 
my glory you may not see. Moses, the greatest of all the prophets in the Hebrew Bible and the one who comes closest to reflecting divine life to his people, has already spoken to God face to face. Now he's depicted as longing to see the divine glory, the actual kavod, the sheer weightiness of the reality of God. For that is the fundamental connotation of kavod, weight, not brightness. Moses longs to see this weight of reality undisguised by a cloud or other veiling. God turns this request aside. The sign that is offered is a partial one, for that is all that humanity can bear. What is shown is goodness. What is withheld is the terrible, wild, inscrutable otherness of God. I note, by the way, that von Balthasar also regards God as refusing Moses' request. Even so, these encounters leave Moses' face shining so brightly with reflected glory that the people cannot bear to look on him. On the shining of Moses' face, Moberly comments that now the implication is that the Israelites see the glory of Yahweh in the face of Moses, as Moses was not able to see the face of Yahweh. So the Israelites can hardly endure to look on the face of Moses, though insofar as Moses is man and not God, and the glory is reflected, they are able to behold him. This is very important for our later understanding of 2 Corinthians 3 and how glory works in the economy of salvation. The sign of God that is the manifestation of God's glory can cause the human being who says yes to God who is willing to risk drawing near to God's holiness, to become him or herself a sign of the divine reality. To return to Exodus 33, what is bearable of the divine reality, what indeed is central to faith and to becoming part of the redemptive work of God, is goodness, but glory is something more, more mysterious, less bearable. So I side with Maimonides in seeing Exodus 33 as an instance of where kavod is intended to signify God's true essence and true reality. This is glory at its most ontological. This is the glory of the enigmatic God of whom Barbara Brown Taylor writes, The God of Moses is not the grandfatherly type, a kind old deity who can be counted on to take the kids' exciting places, without letting them get hurt. The God of Moses is holy, offering no seatbelts or other safety features to those who wish to climb the mountain and enter the dark cloud of divine presence. Those who go assume all risk and give up all claim to reward. Those who return say the dazzling dark inside the cloud is reward enough. So careful reading of Exodus 33 suggests the importance for my approach of an adjustable lens system through which divine glory texts can be read on a spectrum from the purely semiotic to the more strongly ontological. I want to suggest that at the eschaton this spectrum is collapsed because then there is no more need of signification for then we shall see face to face. A second interpretative crux for my approach is found in the Gospel of John. 
The Gospel makes frequent reference to Jesus' hour, the culmination of his glorification. And some scholars, notably John Ashton, associate this hour with resurrection. On this view, the full glory of Jesus is the eschatological glory, and the cross only a necessary preliminary to that glorification. <coughs> Whereas if Jesus' hour is the hour of the passion, then divine glory, an array of signs of the godness of God, is to be found here in powerlessness, degradation and death. The great sign of God that is the life of Jesus, the life that is the manifestation of the divine glory, with the power of healing like the serpent, is a sign transformed by the sinfulness of human response. The sign becomes a human being grotesquely marred by bearing the world's cruelty. And in that suffering we see glory. To my mind, the weight of argument on the fourth gospel strongly supports this second approach for two main reasons. First, very notably, Jesus dreads his hour and asks, Father, what shall I say? Save me from this hour. So the hour of glorification must be something terrible to contemplate. Second, and uh, there's more detail on this on the handout at five, the writer very interestingly links being lifted up with glorification, John 12, 23 and 34, and hence with the last suffering servant song in the Septuagint. I'll leave you to ponder that little passage. Uh, Our reading of Exodus 33 should, in my view, intensify our sense of the mystery of God, going beyond mere goodness and splendour. And our reading of the fourth gospel should alert us that divine glory in some contexts is closely associated with suffering. The fourth evangelist revises the concept of glory in two major ways. First, through an altered understanding of the godness of God through this engagement with glorification in suffering, and second through the possibility of disciples being drawn up into the divine glory, as we see in the high priestly prayer. I suggest that Paul the Apostle revises the concept in two related ways. First, his direct experience of the risen Jesus in his vision or visions convinced him that the Nazarene was none other than the special representative of God in the visionary tradition including first Enoch in the book of Daniel, but reaching behind them to the vision in Ezekiel 1. This vision of the divine glory is for Paul a being in the form of God, Philippians 2, infinitely rich yet becoming poor for our sake, 2 Corinthians 8, a sign of the extraordinary mercy and costly love of God for all people, a visible manifestation of the imminent redemption of the whole cosmos. But secondly, Paul too perceives that believers can be caught up into the divine life. And this because in gazing on the face of Christ, they are in the sort of intimacy with God that Moses knew on the mountain. But now an intimacy that does not fade, but rather is progressively deepened and transformed. 
So I now go on to explore that conclusion working from 2 Corinthians 3. That passage poses us a sharp question. How can human beings be transformed from one degree of glory to another? Or to put it in the terms of this study, how can they become progressively truer signs of the sign of God that is Christ? Stephen Finland traces three phases to the believer's transformation. First, there is an earthly confirmation to the Christ-like pattern of dying to sin. Then there is reception of godly righteousness and light. And finally, there is physical death and resurrection, which entails receiving a transformed body modelled on Christ's body. The understanding of glory as sign in association with this key motif of freedom made possible by the Spirit, provides a way to approach the key verse 2 Corinthians 3.18, which you have at 6 on the handout, and its picture of what I take to be the second of Finland's phases, the reception of godly righteousness and light, the believer as being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The verse poses some key exegetical questions. Just a little Greek, just for fun. Cat of Chitsonoma Manai ten doxan curio. Does that verb uh, here only in the New Testament mean beholding or reflecting the glory of the Lord? And crucially also, how can we understand that phrase, apodoxis est doxan, from one degree of glory to another? The question is very important for all studies of glory, since it is the verse in Paul that most explicitly draws the human being into the divine glory. So first, katotopchitsomonoi. The commentators have argued for centuries about this word. Its more normal meaning of reflecting as in a mirror is now usually rejected in favour of beholding in a mirror. In a recent commentary, Mark Seyfried analyses this issue. He notes that both N.T. Wright and L.L. Belleville prefer the translation reflect in a mirror. But Seyfried's own sense is that the context is Moses' going up to behold God with unveiled face. And he's much influenced by a passage in Philo, which seems to be the closest contemporary parallel. (coughs) Philo has Moses long for more than contemplating God in the natural world, which is a related more to the possibility that Paul explores here, that of beholding with unveiled face the glory of the Lord. But note that both Philo and Paul are using this rare word for beholding as in a mirror. The human beholder is still seeing an image, a sign of the ultimate reality, not looking upon it directly. The image is a true one, an utterly faithful sign, but to look on God directly face to face remains reserved for the eschaton. We only glimpse indirectly Gloria in excelsis, a thought that echoes Paul's related formulation at 1 Corinthians 13.12, to see in a glass darkly. This is not to see a deceiving image, but simply not to see face to face. 
Importantly, Seyfried goes on to suggest that the glory of the Lord is revealed subcontrario, hidden under its opposite. And he cites those wonderful resonant passages in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6, describing the predicament of the believers, afflicted in every way but not crushed, and so on. I would express this rather differently, drawing on our analysis of the Gospel of John. It is not in my view that glory is hidden under its opposite in the Passion of Christ or the persecution of believers. Rather, as Gregory of Nyssa puts it, the greatness is glimpsed in the lowliness. Christ's abasement begins his hour of ultimate glory. The power of love that is at the depths of divine reality is seen in a new way under conditions of oppression. We see the godness of God in the utter vulnerability of salvation offering love. The line of interpretation I want to suggest here allows us to hold both the alternative meanings of this strange verb together. Believers both behold Christ, the perfect reflection of the perfect love of God, the perfect mirror, if you like, and also reflect that love. That is what my colleague Andrew Robinson, drawing very tellingly on the image of two lovers gazing into each other's eyes, calls the runaway process of interpretation, beholding and reflecting together. After coming to this conclusion that the verb must be allowed to carry both meanings, I was delighted to find that Francis Young and David Ford come to the same conclusion, and Barrett's commentary even suggests that such a double reading goes all the way back to Chrysostom. It's a lot of listening and I appreciate very much your careful attention. I turn now from the biblical material to consider uh, glory in the natural world. Thus far I've used my semiotic lens to effect a particular <coughs> reading of biblical text on divine glory. Now in a sense I turn the lens round and consider events in the natural world and whether they too can speak to us of divine glory. Isaiah 6.3, the whole earth is full of his glory. If every place and event in the natural world is full of God's glory, we find ourselves with some very hard cases, as I go on to indicate, at seven on the handout, considering the very tragic uh, Indian Ocean tsunami of uh, December 2004, uh, which so devastating to the lives of so many communities and which cost the lives of a quarter of a million people. But if the whole divine, if in every entity, created entity or event there is the divine glory, then we must be willing to look for elements of glory even in such a catastrophic event. And that's what I try and do here at 7 on the handout, pointing out that we can see the uh, extraordinary power and ingenuity of God's creation 
in the bringing into existence of the massive forces that have made and continue to make this planet fruitful for life, but which are also the forces that led to such devastation and destruction. Gloria Crucis, we can see the glory of utterly vulnerable self-sacrificial love in God's huge compassion for every victim, a compassion we glimpse at its uttermost when we contemplate the cross. Gloria in excelsis, the glory of the great process of the redemption of all things, we see in God's presence to the puzzled, angry and needy worshipper in word and Eucharist, and God's promise of redeemed and fulfilled life from which every tear has been wiped away. So I'm offering you here, with all tentativeness, three-lensed seeing of divine glory, even in an event of great tragedy. And it seems to me that uh, that contemplation leads to a whole series of types of responses to the tsunami, which will properly include anger, that for all God's power, God did not do more to prevent suffering, combined with compassionate anger, action to help and support all those affected, and worship, entering more deeply into the mystery of our relationship with this God, who seems both so powerful and so powerless. And, of course, repentance for the folly of draining so many mangrove swamps that swamps that protected shorelines, for the civil war in Banda Archie that drained communities' strength, for the false economy of refusing to install the early warning system that already existed in the Pacific, and vitally importantly, the response of longing for flourishing life with God that has no end or element of tragedy. Another, perhaps even harder case. On the lower slopes of a mountain in Africa, a young child has her blood sucked by a female Anopheles mosquito. The protozoan Plasmodium falciparis is transmitted to her blood through which it travels to her liver to multiply. Sexual reproduction of falciparis makes it becomes possible when the now malarial child is bitten again by another plasmodium-carrying mosquito. Malaria has recently spread up the mountain because of climate change. The family had neither familiarity with the disease nor precautions against it. As with my first example, a complex mixture of human casualness and neglect is associated with this suffering. Again, as with the tsunami, divine compassion and eventual redemption is a component of this event. But another element, part of Gloria Mundi, as I've been calling it, is the intricacy and efficacy of the complex life cycle of the parasite. There is a sort of evolved ingenuity here, even in this form of cheating on cooperation, that expresses something of the fecundity and generativity of creation. As such, it too, hard and troubling though it is to say, it too is an aspect 
of the divine glory in creation. The language of glory then allows us to admit God's deep involvement in situations where the creation harms the creatures and to interpret using the insights of science and also of poetry and contemplation the array of signs to be found in these events and also to acknowledge the element of mystery to which these events give rise. The God of glory is never reducible to a neat set of philosophical attributes or to a set of data obtained by the natural theologian. The reality of such a God is always more <coughs> and more mysterious than we can imagine. I've deliberately chosen difficult areas of exploration, staying away from those moments with which all of us will be familiar, when the sheer beauty or magnificence of an element of the natural world provokes a profound sense of wonder, and all things, to quote my least favourite hymn, seem bright and beautiful. <laughs> I have tried to show that even very disturbing events in nature, rightly contemplated, can be signs of the deep reality of God. In this connection, it's worth noting that the prophet's response in Isaiah 6 contains within it aspects other than pure worship or praise of the divine glory. It contains an element of dread, a deep sense of repentance, a longing to respond to the Lord, to respond to the divine longing for human emissary, with a longing to be the one sent, to be incorporated, as a Christian thinker might put it, into the divine life, to be caught up into the great divine mission by which the Father sends the Son and all his servants to search out the lost. So in summary, I propose a reading of divine glory that brings into particular focus the mystery of God's nature, the identification of that nature with suffering in Christ's passion, and the promise to believers of the possibility of participation in the divine nature. I have applied this understanding to events in the natural world and showed that it provided a way of speaking honestly about the ambiguities of that world, not pretending that God has no involvement in processes that give rise to great creaturely suffering. How would I evaluate this hermeneutical lens that I am offering you, with which I have tried to interpret divine glory? I suggest it offers several advantages. <clears throat> First, it preserves a sense of the mystery of God, and that what we can know of God is always God's gracious self-communication. Second, it helps us to face up to and explore how the godness of God is communicated to us through passion and crucifixion. Third, it accepts that the harming and suffering of creatures is often wholly or partly down to the character of the world that God has created, and it does not try and tidy that uncomfortable conclusion into some neat explanation. Fourth, it opens the theme of God's glorious self-communication to analysis using the resources of uh, semiotics. And fifthly, it provides an image of how the believer in the process of theosis becomes herself a sign of the divine life through being a sign of Christ. And that in turn enables us to explore what kind of sign such a believer's life 
might be. Thank you very much for your attention.